You're listening to episode 48 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm William. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Before he became the man behind over-the-top Hollywood action films like Face Off, Broken Arrow and Mission Impossible 2, John Woo was the man behind over-the-top Hong Kong action films like A Better Tomorrow, Hard Boiled and, of course, The Killer. Featuring classic stylized action and philosophical underpinnings, it tells the story of a skilled hitman and a dedicated cop who, through a series of events, find themselves drawn together to protect a singer injured in an accident. Strap on your holster, pick up your guns, load them with a ridiculous surplus of ammo and join us as we hunt down and interrogate the killer. We're not often a personable podcast here in Film We Trust, but between our last episode and this time, you have actually achieved some kind of life milestone. <laughs> Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, uh, I've become what's called, I'm not sure what it's called in other countries, but here it's called a first responder. Specific to what? Yes, well, if I could just go into a little bit of detail yep. here. Say someone takes ill in the house. Maybe they have a fall or maybe they're quite short of breath. Yep. They've got pains in the chest. You call the ambulance out. We live quite rurally, though, mm-hmm. and the ambulance response time can be something like 45 minutes. It shouldn't be, but that's just the reality of living where we live. So what I'll do is me and somebody else, another first responder, will go to the person's house, ask questions. What happened? How are you feeling? Do you have any pain? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, any medications? We'll maybe give them oxygen, mostly kind of comforting them. And in the instance where they go into, say, maybe they go into cardiac arrest, we're actually trained to do CPR and use the defibrillators. So it's quite an interesting thing, because I did a first aid course quite a few years ago. It was like that, and then more. Well, appropriately, you did study <laughs> biology at university. I did. Did that come in handy at all? It or? did. It made it extra it? interesting. Say okay. we were talking about certain yes. terms to re- referring to the heart, and to heart attacks, and to cardiac arrest, and strokes. There were a lot of terms. I'm like, I remember this acronym, or I remember this piece of scientific jargon. So for me, it was a fascination doing that. <laughs> what made you do that? What, what was the what was the Yeah, well because the numbers of responders here have gone yep. down, especially during COVID, because mm-hmm. that put a lot of people off and it changed a lot of routines. For example, the idea with CPRs you do like thirty chest compressions and then give them two breaths. Not really supposed to do that now. In fact, when you go to a CPR, I think now you're supposed to put a mask on their face. Really? Which seems counterproductive if you're trying to kind of bring yeah. it back, doesn't it? But but uh, I thought it'd be good to do There was eight of us. So there's going to be eight first responders. I have to get uniforms. We need to do radio training and such. But so far, yeah, we could pretty much go out to a house now. How long did that take? That must, that must have took a while. It was two weekends. Two weekends. Two pretty much full weekends. We had a written assessment. We had a practical assessment. We had to work on mannequins. We, had to, we were given a whole load of equipment. We had masks and oxygen tanks we got to really i don't want to say mess around with that sounds dreadfully irresponsible were you using laughing gas when <laughs> we were told don't you know don't have the the cylinder standing up because if an oxygen tank falls over and it cracks you know it could be very disastrous oh what would that would it ex- well it, would we sure go explode, john it, woo and explode yeah, john woo you say yeah. let's say it cracked it might let air out and that might be because if you're breathing in like pure oxygen for too long it can be very bad for would you, you get a little high you would get a little high because we were practicing doing oxygen in each other and like right. yeah maybe turn that off it's getting uncomfortable now because you can't give oxygen for too long because yeah you can almost get high like uh, a bit of tyler Durden in fight club even brought that up <laughs> Were you influenced by any chance? I mean, our listeners at this point probably knows what a fan of Nicolas Cage you are. Well, in the 90s, Martin Scorsese film, Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, yes. 
Nicholas Cage is a paramedic. Did that enter your head? Okay, Were you thinking, any, I want to be Cage? <laughs> anything Nicholas Cage does, I will do as well. I'm not sure I would give the kind of performance Nicholas Cage would. Not that kind of paramedic, I don't think. <laughs> Were you going to go to each scene less theatrical? Just walking like, whoa! Yep. Wait, sorry, that's Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be Whoa, less. Oh, is Keanu Reeves turned into Nicolas Cage? That was that was Keanu Reeves exaggerated Ooh. somewhat. If, if there yep. was some kind of crossover between Reeves and Cage, but no, I don't think I would be that theatrical going to anybody's house. Don't worry. Well, <laughs> while you were doing all these e- egalitarian goods, I was actually in Manchester. Mm, and what were you doing when you were down in Manchester? Tell us. Yeah, Phil Vallow. Phil Vallow gig. If anybody doesn't know that, he was the singer of Him. Him was a Finnish. A soft metal, hard rock band from famous in the 2000s. It was a good night, seeing old friends, getting probably too drunk. Too drunk <laughs> it was a good night. The Val was still in form. Yeah. It was a great performer. Was it one of those things that makes you realise there's a lot of friends like scattered around that you just don't get to see enough just because they live so far. I mean, Manchester's not miles away from yeah, where we live. It's a couple hours on the train. It is, but it's still kind of difficult being able to get out and see them. It does change things. I mean... It's amazing. You you don't realize. You think so many people are still around you, and you mm. don't actually realize until you kind of you know you sit and think, and you say, "Fuck, man! <laughs> all these people I know are scattered so far across the country." It's like it's right enough because these were people that both of us went to school yes. with. Most of them I have not seen since two thousand and six, which yes, is when so I left school. That's cha- the last time I cha- seen them. Changes a lot, man. Changes a lot. People, but, you know, intrinsically, people are the same no matter how much time you spend away from them. That's the thing. Have you had that thing where you've not seen someone in ten years and you're like, oh, what you've been up to? And they say, oh, not much, just work. I'm like, I've not seen you in a decade. There must have been something else. I think that is explicitly a Scottish thing. You think so? Do you not think, or is it universal? Sure if I've you met- meet a Scottish person you've never seen for 15 years, yeah. 10 years, 5 years, <laughs> say, oh man, what have you been up to? Ah, not much. Is it because they don't want to talk about it or they can't be arsed? And they've probably fought drug addiction, <laughs> jail time, yeah, <laughs> and they're being chased by the police, but still, they've yeah. not been up to much. I remember I met someone, yeah, I'd, I'd not seen them in ages. What have you been up to? Oh, not much. I'm like, hold on. I happen to know you've changed jobs and homes several times. That is something to tell me. What do you mean you've not done anything? Hey. <laughs> In Scotland, we are understated. I think I think that's probably. What I think it is. I think that's what it is. It's it's the it's the introspection. Maybe the unwillingness to give away too much because you know some people like to say mysterious. You don't want to know too much about them. Kind of like us on this podcast. We stick to film. We stick to <laughs> film analysis. People are probably listening to this episode and saying, "Wow." Is that what they're like? I'm turning <laughs> off. <laughs> That's why we do it. It's exactly. A, it's a film podcast occasionally spiked with personal details. And now it's going to be a personal podcast <laughs> occasionally spiked with film details. 50 minutes later, I'm like, oh yeah, we've seen The Killer. Yeah, it was really good. I liked it. <laughs> bang, bang, shoot, shoot, John, woo, woo. Exactly. There you go. Actually, friends of mine, uh, Australian friends of mine, do you know what they call movies like this? They call them bang, bangs. Bang, same, bang. same with Wild Westerns. They call them bang, bangs. They're not off. It's quite no, accurate. It's it's a very it's uh, onomatopoeia, I believe. Is onomatopoeia. The, onomatopoeia is the fancy word. Isn't that a musical thing? <laughs> I think it is a musical thing. It's well, it, the sound of words. I remember yes, yes. someone making a joke about. It. Let's hear someone like Mike Tyson say that. But appropriately, <laughs> you mentioned Australia, and we're on about John Woo. Well, John Woo came to fame, Wayne, mm. in the Hong Kong New Wave. Now, mm. in Wake and Fright, we. We explained the Australian new wave. Mm. And I think we've also touched on the French new wave. We did, We've also touched on the British new wave, colloquial termed as British kitchen sink. And if if you're thinking, what are these, right? British kitchen sink, the French new wave. They almost deconstructed cinema itself. The French new wave took a lot from 1930s gangster pictures. For example, Breathless by Godard or Melville's films, Le Samurai. 
they took an American form, the gangster picture, and they subverted it to a degree, made it explicitly French. And you could say John Woo's doing the same here because we're in the Hong Kong New Wave, which is roughly determined to be from 1979 to the present day. And this exploded because at the time, the main export of film was Hollywood. Yeah. But to rival that, Hong Kong was there. Hong Kong was there. It was second behind Hollywood to rival exports of films. And part of this was, it was very uncommon at the time, especially mainland China, and to a degree Hong Kong itself, for citizens not to have a television within the home. Mm -hmm. So that allowed cinema, the cinematic experience is what, as we often go on about, people to head outside their front door and experience cinema on the big screen. Because TV, unlike here in the West, in the 60s especially, it took off as a form. It took off and I think we experienced dwindling cinema audiences and towards the 70s etc didn't we yes there was kind of a downturn in the cinemas with the chinese cinemas it was very different because if you think you got the kind of the triangle you've got china taiwan and hong kong mm -hmm. obviously as i'm sure we all know hong kong was a british colony and that actually meant they had a lot more freedom in the films because say movies like chinese films i've seen quite a few chinese films a lot of the most influential ones are based around the revolution in china right. as a result not only were a lot of these films banned the filmmakers were also exiled as well if they dared to portray the revolution in a negative light. Similar thing in Taiwan, but with Hong Kong, you had much more stylistic freedom, and that's where people like John Woo came along, people like Terence Chang, who was a very popular producer at the time. These people came along and were able to make these much more interesting, much more stylistically diverse films because at the time when Hong Kong cinema really took off it was third behind say like Bollywood and Hollywood so you had Bollywood Hollywood then you had the Hong Kong yeah. cinema it was a powerhouse I guess people don't think about it as much because with Hong Kong cinema Chinese cinema you maybe don't think of the breakthrough coming until someone like Bruce Lee came along mm -hmm. and yeah Bruce Lee you can credit him with really changing the perception of like Asian people in American movies well Bruce Lee did he not get a star in Golden, Golden Harvest pictures. Yes. And I think John Woo for the most part got his start in Shaw Brothers pictures yes. where he was assistant director because a fact I did not know. Now I've seen A Better Tomorrow. A Better Tomorrow is really good. It stars Chow Yun-Fat also but I could almost believe if somebody said to me that was his first film or one of his very first but he had actually directed 15 films before A Better Tomorrow. Something I didn't know. I also didn't know he specialised for the most part amongst other things comedy films. I yeah. never got that. John, John Woo did. Yes. Well, like with uh, Chow Yun-Fat as well, he's mostly known, because when I think of Chow Yun-Fat, I think action films. Chow Yun-Fat is a renowned dramatic actor. He's mostly known yep. for appearing in films like that. A lot of Chinese actors, in fact, like the big, like say the big Hong Kong, like the whole mm -hmm. um, cinematic heavyweights, a lot of those were singers as well. Mm -hmm. So they had that big crossover appeal. That's why a lot of them excelled in drama, because you listen to a lot of the songs they sing, a lot of them. Like when I was over in China, I heard lots of songs on the radio. So many of the songs, they're love ballads. So that's why they fit very much stylistically in with these dramatic films. Now, would you say Hong Kong cinema? Now, it's a wide breadth of cinema. It's not like Ozploitation, for example, where there's a specific film or Hicksploitation in America, etc., <laughs> Hong Kong New Wave spans a vast diversity of filmmaking it's not a particular genre it's not a particular style it's essentially because in the 80s hong kong um, experienced the economic boom itself 
culturally and financially. And this cinema kind of represents that. This is when money was coming into the country on a scale unprecedented beforehand. You got this film for a John Woo film. And then more recently, even though it's not that recent now, but Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. Yes. One of, probably the one of the most infamous Hong Kong films of recent times. Very, very good film and a multi-award winner. Easily one of the most acclaimed. In fact, I watched, uh, uh, it was, I read a poll. It was like, I think it was the greatest films of the 21st, uh, the 21st century. Number one, Mulholland Drive by David Lynch. Number two, In the Mood for Love. That yeah. high up the list. That's how acclaimed it was. But this is how much Hong Kong itself respected the art that was coming from itself. For example, in the UK, if you look at the top 10 films in the UK, most of them are going to be American. Most of them are going to be American blockbusters. But at the time, especially the 70s, the top 11 films of the 70s, the top 20, sorry, 11 of them were native Hong Kong films. So there was a massive respect for its own cinema project production within its own borders, which you don't necessarily experience anywhere. I hear France is the same. France has certain quotas. Only certain amount of films at the cinema have to be French. For example, in France, 90% of the songs on the radio also have to be French. I've, heard that, I've heard that before, yes. Right, but we don't have that here, do we? No, no, no we don't. No, we'll, hear, we'll hear music from all over the place. With the Hong Kong, I like to think that they had kind of a watershed moment where the money was flooding in. You had all these up-and-coming filmmakers. You had all these up-and-coming performers and producers and directors. And they suddenly realised, we can just make all of this stuff. We can actually compete on the world stage. Because there was a downturn in Asian cinema in, I think it was the mid-90s, but that went along with an economic crash, yeah. which I believe started in Thailand, kind of plummeted profit and then it's kind of started to recover like I've been to Hong Kong I've been to the the Avenue of Stars which is essentially Hong Kong's uh, Hollywood Boulevard with Ooh, all the stars is there. it big is it big it's n- compared to Hollywood Boulevard no yeah. but it's quite long it goes right along um, uh, right along the bay you have stars from like Jackie Chan and then there's Chow Yun Fat there's actually a statue of Bruce Lee there which I got a photo stand I've next seen the to statue, yes. looking like a tit did you did you look like a tit <laughs> I'm, I'm like oh yeah I'm doing this Bruce Lee thing like kind of pre-strike uh, fighting you, pose. You weren't posing with your I'm literally off. posing here. Sorry that you can't see that. Actually, no, it's lucky. Do we put that on Twitter? Do, do, do we dare? Do we dare Just take a photo of me sitting in front of the mic yeah. like this. Do we but dare? The, but it's a floodgate moment and it introduced all of these movies to international cinemas. And that's why I think the Hong Kong kind of cinema boom hit the way that it did. Well, with John Woo specifically, as we said, he experienced this long career with the Shaw Brothers as an assistant director, but it wasn't really until he met the producer and director, Sue Hark, that he realized his potential, where he realized his career going forth. Because Sue Hark put the money into this film, A Better Tomorrow, yes. which is similar to The Killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's under the, the banner, quote-unquote, heroic bloodshed, what would become a genre <laughs> in itself. Yeah. But they made A Better Tomorrow 1, they made A Better Tomorrow 2, they <laughs> did fall out on A Better Tomorrow 3. They Sh- Shouldn't A Better Tomorrow 2 have been called A Better Two Days Later? But Because... So, <laughs> so, because John Woo, you know, his his emphasis, his focus, for the most part, as a creator, is action. We all know him as the action guy. Mm-hmm. Sue Hark, he likes to introduce the melodrama to the piece. And I, you can see this with this film. There's almost this action crossed with a 50s Douglas Sirk film, where yeah. every emotion is heightened to the point that it becomes theatrical. So you're saying this movie is almost those two meeting each other halfway. Like, you have your action half, and we'll have your melodrama half. Because when they were making uh, Better Tomorrow 2, I believe the studio were unhappy with it, and maybe out of spite, they started rejecting John Woo's future ideas. But did you know what else happened mm-hmm. with number two, Better Tomorrow 2? Yeah. They both edited it. 
yeah. s- separately. How does that work? Well, doesn't that happen a lot? Like you hear about movies that get botched in the yeah. editing room. It's usually studios who botch a movie in the edit to make it more marketable. For yep. example, you'll hear long movies getting cut down because if you cut down a movie by, say, an hour, you can show it more times yeah, than yeah. that maximizes profit. But then again, you cut huge important chunks out of the narrative. So when you watch the movie, yeah, it's shorter, but it's borderline incoherent. But A Better Tomorrow was hugely influential in Hong Kong. It started people wearing, you know, the long trench coat. It started a fashion fad. I mean, is that something you want to pick I, up on? I don't think I've ever followed a fashion fad anything like that. No. I'm pretty sure the long trench coats were kind of to look cool, but also because you can hide more weapons in your Did trench coats. Did that not coats. happen in the Matrix as well? Did, did it not start wearing long dust, leather Every, duster jackets? Everybody was wearing black leather. Everybody wanted everything to have this kind of bizarre green tint. Yeah. Cyber goth. Something like that. Yeah, The Matrix did kick a lot off. I mean, it was also to Dark City as well, a film yeah. that we've kind of talked about. I was never a big fan. No, never I wasn't a big, a big fan. fan either. But a lot of people say that kind of got the jump on The Matrix. But The Matrix was the one that was the most influential. But due to this falling out, Sue Hark solely made number three, A Better Tomorrow 3, by himself, by his lonesome. And there was elements within that because... In A Better Tomorrow 3, you got Sue Hark's own experiences. It's very much a Vietnam drama, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But that also bled its way into Wu's later film, Bullet in the Head, because Bullet in the Head from John Wu was also from a draft from A Better Tomorrow 3. So both of them films, A Better Tomorrow 3 and A Bullet in the Head, both have Vietnamese elements. To be funny, you watch all these movies kind of put together and how they bleed into each other. Because did John Wu not later go on to make, was it Wind Talkers, starring Nicolas Cage, which was a Vietnam movie? I think it was panned for being, one criticism I heard is boring, Honestly, not a criticism I ever heard leveled at John. Have Wu. you seen the film? I've not. I've seen never seen the film. Either. I remember hearing a lot of hype at the time, but I've never actually gone into. To be see fair, it. I've kind of dropped off John Wu. I've never. You know, he went back to making Chinese films. He did, yes. I, I, I don't think I've seen one of them. Although, interestingly, coming back to America, he is apparently working on an American remake of The Killer. For Paramount, and then yeah. an ex- a streaming exclusive on Peacock. I don't think that's going to go well. Are you like me at this stage where just the word remake makes you sigh? Oh, it like is. Remake again. It's kind of pissing me off, Wayne. It does piss me off. It's Especially when you're make, remaking a movie that's not from that long ago and doesn't really... Like, what other angle are you going to go at it from? Well, The Killer's from 89. From 89, So yeah. I was one year old. <laughs> I was How just... can you remake a film which made in your lifetime? <laughs> I was just born. Interestingly, you mentioned Bullet in the Head. John Woo considers The Killer and Bullet in the Head to be his best films. Really? Not, at least of his Hong Kong days, because let's be honest, his Hong Kong days were his most interesting, because after The Killer, it wasn't long after that that he made his Hollywood transition. I didn't think you'd say that. I thought you were going to come here, you know, <laughs> rep your boy Nicolas Cage and say <laughs> the... Sing to the hill about how much you love Face Off. Do you love Face Off? I do love Face Off. I thought you would love Face Off. Like, I'm not talking. It's not in the same vein as I love some as I love the Killer, for example, really? or like Hardball. Ooh. It's a kind of it's much more over the top. I reckon with Hollywood, he was given more free reign for his kind of crazy action stuff. His actioners are what he's known for. But with this movie, there's a lot of kind of psychological undercurrents. Not so much in Face Off. I mean, you could say Face Off is maybe playing around with identity, yeah. but that's very secondary. Is to that the giving action. it too much credit? I think it maybe is giving it too much. Are we credit. just going crazy and it's just fun? <laughs> are we talking about facades, swapping yeah. faces, and becoming a different person? No, that's there just to kind of facilitate the action. I imagine that's <laughs> one of them early films that made you love Nicolas Cage. Yes, it? it definitely is. I yeah, think so. that and. Hard Target as well, Jean-Claude Van Damme. His first American film, I did really enjoy that. Oh, it's got no. it's got the kind of usual shortcomings of a John Woo film and a Van Damme film, we'll say. I, I have to say, I have to say, you know, I'm an exploitation guy. Yes, we know. I can be a genre guy. Yeah. 
I never got into action. I was never, for whatever reason, I know that always seems blasphemous. I never got into action. I never got into Van Damme. I never got into uh, Seagull. Yes, <laughs> they were never my guys. And I was like, oh, really? Do you know what it is? I think after a while, during this, the film you're watching, not this one, I like, I like this film, but do you almost get action fatigue? It's like, oh yeah, another action scene. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. I am very happy you brought that up. You know how there are movies through your life which are watershed moments, yeah. usually for a good reason. But for me, I've got one on the inverse. Did you ever see Van Helsing? The like the Hugh Jackman film? The Hugh Jackman yeah, one, yeah. yeah. That was a watershed moment for me, not in a good way. That was the first movie I ever remember, the first ever action movie I ever remember watching and becoming bored of the action. There was an action scene in that movie about every 10 minutes i'm like oh another action sequence i was actually fed up so for me as a kid who grew up watching schwarzenegger stallone jackie chan van damme all those people i was got to a point i thought yeah this is actually getting tiring give me something give me some more story this is getting tiring because you are a big action guy it's one of your favorite genres would you say i would say yes because uh, as we were saying this film kicked off the heroic bloodshed Mm -hmm genre so to speak and if you want to a western through see that through a western eyes point break i love I, i've got to say i love point break I do love the point break, yes. Globe, point break also under that banner if we're getting loose here leon the professional which i Ooh. know is one of your top five favorite films of all time absolutely one of my favorite films of all time does tie into this in several ways because this movie we're talking a kind of hitman movie leon is a hitman movie so was la femme nikita yeah. which was uh luke Besson's movie before that which you recently watched which i recently watched liked it nowhere near yeah. as much as leon though does very much tie into this film you said heroic bloodshed there also a term i love gung fu gung yes gung fu because also another genre i love kung fu films especially movies like jackie chan films bruce lee films the same kind of thing but it's gunplay rather than hand-to-hand combat well you can see that right john woo in shaw brothers john woo getting a start in shaw brothers for example what is a shaw brothers film have you seen many shaw brothers I haven't films? Seen, no, they're no. very heroic they're very they're following the hero's arc they're martial arts you could almost say he's extrapolating that and putting it into this and as you said gun fu and you can see he even in this film, there's a heroic arc. It's the heroism. It's heroism above all. Heroism above plot. It's all about the moral code of the characters within the film. And I think that is what... They, he's, he's taking what the Shaw Brothers studio were doing and extrapolating it and putting it to a very modern approach. It's got a very, very classic plot device because when you look at the central plot of the film, you have a hitman played by Chow Yun-Fat. Chow Yun-Fat, very close friend of John Woo's. They collaborated, collaborated on five or six films together, I think. He plays a hitman and he ends up, through circumstances, injuring someone he's not meant to and then protecting them. You mentioned Leon before, exactly the same thing. He ends up, someone who is a killer, someone who it's in their nature to kill people, is now going the other way. It's the nurturing. They're now having to look after someone and it's very much a against what they would usually do, which is what creates the interesting dynamic that's at the heart of the film itself. Well, this film was especially influenced by Pierre Melville's Le Samurai, Samurai. starring Alain Delon. And in that film, it's about a hitman. But it's not really about a hitman. No. And they're saying this film is much the same. It's called The Killer, but it's not really about a killer. No. It's, it's about the internal struggle. It's about the, the moral code of said killer, without being about the assassinations themselves. And, you know, we, we were discussing, we were saying, look, action films, if they're not done right, you get uh, action fatigue, so yeah. to speak. But Wu did make this reference, and specifically to the, his films, and he says, this mixture of 
emotion and action, what we're discussing, the heroic bloodshed. And he says, I always believed in what Akira Kawasawa said. An action scene should tell a human story. If it doesn't, the scene won't work. And I think that's what John Woo has learned, is what he's developed, is what he's picked up on. Because in an action scene in John Woo, in specifically this film, The Killer, you know where the moving parts are in the scene. You don't lose track of focus. It's not edited to the point you don't know what's going on. You're following somebody's point of view. You see everybody in the periphery. You know what's happening. You know what's going on. You understand the scene and from an emotional point, like he was just quoted about Kurosawa. And I think that makes the difference. It's not mindless violence, although there is mindless violence, but, <laughs> but, there's, but there's pathos put on top of that. And it's an interesting juxtaposition as well, because you're talking about a hitman here. There are so many shootouts in this movie, constant. Like, John Woo was famous for this. You've got your the, the classic action tropes. You have people jumping through the air. You have people who are being killed smashing through glass windows. You have constant slow motion. Yep. You have so many blood scripts. I, like, I don't know if you noticed this, so many blood scripts go off you see the sparks of the blood script every did you time see it happens. I never saw the spark yeah just I, I think it was pointed out and I watched back and I thought oh my god you can see every one of them you know someone who that did have a big impact on Robert Rodriguez it, El Mariachi because before making El Mariachi a film we've spoken about he said I went to the movies to see John Woo's The Killer damn I thought I wish we had more money for squib effects <laughs> I'd like to think half this movie's budget went to well blanks for a start and also squib effects do you know what the, one of the taglines of this film is and I think it sums up the film one vicious hitman one relentless cop 10,000 bullets only 10,000 bullets only 10 again, I, I think they're shortchanging John Woo <laughs> I think so because yeah. not slightly off topic a bit one of my favourite John Woo movies from his Hong Kong days did you see Hard Boiled yes absolutely I, are you going to reference the hospital scene no no it's the oh. hospital scene no actually I would have referenced someone from the DVD cover oh. and I think this sums it up well because when you think of these like, funny cliche action movies one of the tropes is people not running out of bullets yep. that is insane in this movie and if you take Hard Boiled and you look at the, the cover at the back it's mm. talking about the lead character Tequila played by Chow Yun-Fat and it says he shoots from the hip never reloads and never misses <laughs> you ever play like a first person shooter on the Playstation or Xbox or whatever and you put the infinite ammo cheat characters in this movie have the infinite ammo cheat in real life I, I think John Woo is probably influenced did John Woo not develop a game back in the day for Xbox or something he might have done I think he did I know like Spielberg for example helped develop the Medal of Honor series oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know which one John, John Woo, Woo did it as well absolutely not surprising. I think the game even probably had John Woo's name in the title. That's unsurprising. Because it is very video game-like. I mean, one of the the motifs in this film, what we go back to, what we pontificate on with the characters is our main character, played by Chow Yun-Fat, one of his M.O.s is he always leaves one bullet in his clip, mm -hmm. and he says he leaves that specifically for his enemy, his last enemy, or for himself. Mm -hmm. Now, did you ever count if he actually shot out that clip? No, but I often did count how many shots he fired one scene. I thought, is there a magazine that would hold that many bullets? I'm pretty sure there's automatic rifle magazines that don't hold enough bullets for that. But he is the god cheat him, because he knows he can always keep one in the chamber. Exactly. He has infinite ammo. He doesn't even need to worry about that last bullet. Then, like The number of bullets in this I think you'll agree are insane you could if you're a good hitman here's the thing yeah. if you're a good hitman effective hitman you could kill someone with one bullet one well-placed bullet <laughs> he shoots every henchman in this movie at least like six or seven times because he's usually like dual gunning it he's usually got two guns going at the same time I like how <laughs> there's this term for John Woo and for people since bullet ballet bullet ballet and the way the scenes are choreographed the way they are stylized the way he'll slide back from a chair wait for somebody to come in the door opening shoot them 
it works so effectively. Everything is choreographed to the hill. It's to the 10th degree. It's, it knows it's a film. It's very cinematic. And we, as we were saying about this the Hong Kong new wave, many of these directors, I'm not saying John Woo, but many of these directors were actually educated abroad. They had a Western education. Mm-hmm. So they brought this aesthetic to the East, the Far East. And you can see the Western influence throughout this film. And you can see it within even character choices. Chow Yun-Fat in this film plays the harmonica, yes. which is specifically influenced by the scores of er- Ennio Morricone. Mm-hmm. They drink Budweiser. Budweiser, exactly. yeah. There's these very intentionally Western it's very American Americanization, yes. Right. And you wonder, is that trying is that crossover appeal? Are we going for a wider audience? Mm-hmm. Because let's 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 get down to it. John Woo himself is a Christian. Yes, He's not he Buddhist, which is probably uncommon in them parts. Maybe not so much in Hong Kong with the UK influence, mm-hmm. but for example, the church and Christianity, Christian mythology plays mm-hmm. quite a part in this film. <laughs> if you didn't know that John Woo was a Christian or had some kind of Christian influence, all you need to do is watch this film. One thing I enjoy, this was the first of his movie to feature the dove. Which is good because that became a staple. Movies like Face Off, it's right. there's doves in places you wouldn't even think to see them before. Well, and the church is iconic. The church is, you know, it's placed as a place of pilgrimage almost, where a sanctuary for emotion. The church is an opening sequence in this film. And the last sequence. Yes, very good. And actually the Christian imagery, largely inspired by Stephen, uh, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, and he actually used the image to show his... Uh, John Woo's quote was, God is welcoming, no matter if it's a good or a bad man, everyone is welcome. Really ties into the last scene because the kind of convergence of the film at the end is a shootout in a church. Because we start and we end in a church. But the start is more all good guys. At the end, it's kind of a mix of both of them. It's like an interesting juxtaposition. Well, this film, Chow Yun-Fat, he blinds the young singer. He goes to take out a hit on somebody at the very start of this film and he blinds this young woman who is the singer in a nightclub and I think that's what the church represents above all because it ends at the church it starts at the church and the church in a sense is Chow Yun-Fat's penance for the crime he's committed he didn't intend to it was a muzzle flash in her eyes yes what blinds her and I think that's what the church is above all it's the redemption arc it's the penance that's what it represents because he's a hitman he essentially spends his whole life as a killer and that's what I'm talking about the juxtaposition here because he's a man who spends his career killing people maybe not necessarily bad people he essentially just kills whoever he's told to yeah, he just kills exactly but then Wait, he's yeah the killer <laughs> the killer yep. but then he's given well he's not given the job but he goes to protect Jenny this singer who he's accidentally blinded who, who did you know was actually a Cantonese pop star yeah like I say mo- a lot of them were at the time she Sally did, yeah Sally yeah, yeah who actually felt she didn't give her best performance no in I know film. I'll say she's not given lots to do to be honest no, she's he, he, here's here's what I think. What do you think? Right, there's the love story between Chow Yun Fat and Jenny. There's essentially the love story between the cop who is chasing him and Chow Yun Fat, and I think that's actually the more important story because it's the duality of the character. Now, the cop who the main cop who is after him is played by Danny Lee. Now, Danny Lee and Chow Yun Fat also starred in Street, starred in City of Fire. Yeah. Now, City of Fire by Lam, 1987, was also a huge influence on Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs to the point that Tarantino was accused of ripping off City on Fire. (laughs) Now, they played similar characters in City on Fire two years prior, though the roles were reversed. Chow Yun-Fat was the cop, Danny Lee was the gangster. But in this film, Chow Yun-Fat obviously is the killer, Danny Lee is the cop. Now, they both have a moral code, and I think that's important because you get this impression that 
if they were to have any other upbringing, any other start in life, they could have been in the reversed roles because they carry themselves with dignity, they carry themselves with grace, and they carry themselves with a moral code within the world they are in that is, quote-unquote, you know, to bang on about this genre, heroic. Well, both of them are extremely skilled gunmen who, like you say, just happen to fall on one side of the fence because Chawi and Fat does look at it. It's almost not about the killing himself. It's about the act of killing and its moral implications because you, these two often have stand-ups. I feel like the story between him, uh, between the detective and the killer and the killer and Jenny, I feel like those stories are almost kind of fighting it's each other It's almost like sometime. a bizarre love triangle. It is, because when it goes on to uh, uh, Inspector Lee and Jong, Chow Yun-Fat's character, it feels like that has the most interesting dynamic, and the Jenny plotline mm. kind of gets pushed back. That felt like it was just there to facilitate Chow Yun-Fat's, not descent, but kind of really rethinking his life. Because he says at one point, they say to each other, Jong says to Lee, the cop, he says, I play by the rules, which is funny because you'd think it'd be the cop that did that. But Lee is very much the kind of cop who plays by his own rules because those buddy cop cliches, he gets chewed up by the boss at one point. He only helps actually solve the case once he's been suspended. These are things we've seen through, like, you know, Lethal Weapon, yep. so many kind of buddy cop things. But it's that, too, that, that duality of it. Jong says at one point, we both use guns for a living, only our motivation is different. So essentially, all of them are killers. It makes me think of, did you ever see The Bicycle Thief? Yeah, yeah, the... Classic, yeah. I never thought I'd be referencing that while talking about a John Woo film. What's the reference? What's the reference? The reference is, the movie is sometimes called Bicycle Thief, sometimes Bicycle Thieves. And it very much changes, oh, right, yeah. it very much changes the implication of the movie. Because yep. you could have called this movie The Killers, because it is kind of about the two people. But saying The Killer, it could be any one of us. Like The Bicycle Thief, that could be any one of us. Well, you said Chow Young-Fat, who plays Jong... Are you sure that's what he's called? Well, <laughs> are you sure would... it's not Jeff <laughs> or uh, or Mickey Mouse Mickey or Mo even or even John? I it know, very much depends. Very much depends on, on the what translation sort of, because you were saying about a lot of these filmmakers went over and were educated and then brought back. Yeah. And a lot of these movies, maybe it was bad exports, maybe it was just pirated subtitle files. But yeah, they did misname a lot of the characters. You know, a lot of the subtitles weren't even fully corrected until a DVD release in two thousand and two. Really? That's how long it took to actually properly fix this. Charlie and Fat referred to as Mickey Mouse but <laughs> by Danny Lee, and Danny Lee is referenced as Dumbo. Yeah, they kind of give these other these kind of deprecating nicknames during one of the scenes. Okay, can, can we go on the record? <laughs> is this film very homoerotic? It is could, there something between them two? There is definitely a thing between them. There is a homoeroticism. There's an, there's an admiration that always almost, would you say, borders on adoration at times? Because Lee is the cop who, he's that cop who's been assigned to somebody who has to track them down, who has yeah. to stop them, but kind of can't bring himself to because he realises that there are other forces at play which deserve his attention more than this Well, there's guy. an obsession at play, and I think because it's that obsessional part, and it kind of reminded me of Michael Mann's Manhunter, yes. his, his take on Red Dragon, the Hannibal Lecter film. And I, you get, there's that almost that 80s slickness to it, which can border on obsessional thematically, but it can also border on the, the homoerotic. And I got that. It's almost, it's obsessed to the point of fascination and fascinated to the point of love, can you say? There is a weird kinship between these two characters. And can you remember, as we mentioned Tarantino before, I can't remember what film he was in, and he was given a... a homoerotic analysis of Top Gun mm -hmm. of Maverick and Ice Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise I kind of got that with this film way more over in that film <laughs> and I, was, I was thinking in this film 
I am sure there is something more than just a, you know, a, a respect between them, a respect of honor, a code of respect. I think these characters... I think if there was a killer too, these guys would be living together. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Actually, Jong does say at one point to a friend of his, the guy who essentially sets up his hits, he says, it never used to be like this. Perhaps we're too nostalgic. So it feels they come from a different world, a different time where this was viewed as a more honourable profession. But now, it's like, did you ever see Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Yeah, yeah. Kind, Steve of, Martin kind, film? kind of the same thing where Steve Martin and Michael Caine are both ripping people off, but Michael Caine is disgusted by Steve Martin because he's not classy. He doesn't have that yeah. same suave He's just some cheap guy ripping people off. I'm like, hey, you're doing the same thing. Just because you're posher, just because you're classier, just because you do it to you know more rich clients or whatever, doesn't necessarily make you any better. Well, he's got a point. <laughs> well, Wu, Wu specifically about this film and about the themes of this film, he says it's specifically, specifically about honor and friendship in brackets, homoeroticism. Yeah. But he, <laughs> he says this, this, this fascination, this honor, this friendship, do you know what it was influenced by? The spy versus spy comic in Mad Magazine, the American comic Mad Magazine, and this is where he got this friendship from. Okay, that's a weird, that's a weird influence. Because that's it's a comic, it's a comic magazine, quite isn't specific. It? But it doesn't make sense, like you said about Manhunter. It's the person who is pursuing someone who they're supposed to be enemies with, but developing a kind of obsession with. And it's like it's almost like they see themselves as two sides of the same coin. Because with Jong and Lee, you've got two guys. Both of them kill for a living, whether it's killing for hate, it's a judicial killing or whatever. The fact that they're very much juxtaposed to each other, and that's what draws them together. The op- it's the opposite attract uh, well, concept. Well, po- maybe maybe it's not the opposite. Maybe it's the point that to understand somebody, to obsess over somebody, you have to recognize something of them in yourself. And I think that's what the, po- the cop played by Danny Lee is recognizing him in himself. He may not admit that, as Chow Yun Fat may not recognize himself in Danny Lee's character. But they are one in the same. They live by the same code. They live by the same honor, and it bleeds into one in itself. There's a there's a shot in this film when Danny Lee is investigating a crime that has been committed, and the camera does this thing where it replaces Chow Yun Fat in a flashback to. Danny Lee currently sitting in the same chair as him. And it is visually telling us in this film that they are also one in the same. They mm. think the same, they are the same, they are just on opposite sides of the law. Circumstances dictate they, that they are different. But psychologically, thematically, for this film, to fit in the world of this film, they are the same character. Definitely one of my favourite shots in the film. It's a great Because shot. we don't have to have that classic line you hear over and over again when someone says, oh, we're not so different, you and I. Yeah. It essentially shows that, yeah, they are different, but essentially what they do, pretty much the same thing. And to tie it into Hard Boiled, the film I was talking about you before. You love that film. I do love that film. You like that film better than this film, do you? I like the action in the film more. You think it's... I, I feel this film, right. The Killer, has a lot more going on underneath the kind of... Under- thematically, yeah. Thematically a lot more. Hard Boiled, I watched as a kid showed my cousin we absolutely loved it because the killings are more spectacular the difference is Chow Yun-Fat's character there is a cop in that one yep. he kills for vengeance because his partner was yep. killed again some we've heard a million times the killer here it's like killing for redemption because one point I think it's before the halfway point Jong says he's never going to kill again I think it's after the thing with Jenny yep, yep. And, and that relationship's budding he says no I'm never going to kill again I thought well we've got about an hour and something to go this is going to make things awkward so many more people die I think more people die after that moment. 
<laughs> more unendable gun clips are to go. Essentially, they're yeah. not going to finish. Yeah, I mean the action scenes. Well, we'll be honest, they are pretty spectacular. I love that bullet ballet. I like the smooth moving camera. I like how intelligently use the environments. Like they'll jump on an office chair, pull themselves, and move back. It's not. It's not just a straightforward shoot. There's a lot more going on. There were some bits that, that for me, I don't know about you, for me, they straight up made no sense. There's a scene where Jong is on a beach because he's just been, yep. he's just in a high profile assassination. There's a bunch of hench- henchmen after him. He shoots one of them through what I think is a sheet and it catches fire. Like the sheet catches fire. What was it soaked in? Gasoline? It must How have been. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> you don't question the woo, Wayne. <laughs> it's the way of the woo. <laughs> I'm going to get that on a pillow. The way of the woo. Don't question the way of the woo. But there's so much that don't make sense. Also, how many henchmen are in this film? Do you feel like the baddies in this film, they're quite cartoonishly over-the-top bad guys, very shouty, bulgy eyes. It feels like the baddies in this movie have so many henchmen for the explicit purpose of all of them being cut down in hails of gunfire, because that's what happens to all of them. They're essentially the same gunmen who (laughs) storm Tony Montana's mansion in Scarface. Basically, They're just there to be endlessly slaughtered. (laughs) You could have the same person played by, like, the same actor. You could, like, just copy and paste. I wonder if they ever done that. I think he did. I think I read on IMDb, there is actually a bit where two henchmen, because they have recognisable facial hair, so, like, it's the two same henchmen getting killed. Because I think (laughs) it's either the end in the scene in the church, the final shootout, or Mm. the penultimate shootout at the beach house. I think one of them took 30 days to film itself mm. or over 30 days. So you, I mean, when you know that information, when you see the technique that is going into it, it goes beyond the, the derivatives of Wu. Yes. You know, you got the Hollywood derivatives who pretty much they thought their their way to a great action scene was fast cutting and confusion. Mm-hmm. They missed the emotional part of it. Now that came in a part. You know, we've got jo- John Wick now, which does tremendous action scenes. Absolutely, it's a great action film. You can obviously. See, I always wondered. I wonder if he's called John because of John Wu. John Wick. John. I, th- I think so. That, that I could I, I'm going for that. I could kind of understand that happening. But can I ask you, do you think there is a certain stigma around action movies? I, I think, in a way, it's very similar to the stigma around horror movies. Because people, I think, are judging them by the worst examples. Because people will dismiss an action movie by saying, oh, Michael Bay films. Or they'll dismiss a horror movie by, oh, this is just a jump scare fest or whatever. But like, if I'm going to recommend a horror movie, I'll recommend something like X. Like a good example yeah. of the genre. So like something like The Killer is a good example of the genre. So that's why I think it's difficult to do an action movie very, very well. I think that's why I was hinting at before. You get the derivatives, don't you? You get the people influenced by it or they don't necessarily understand it. They want to capitalise on it. So they think, okay, let's just give them all action, quick cutting, fast cutting, but no pathos to it. So all you're getting is, is what I said before. It comes down to this. If you don't know how to do it well, especially with action, you get action fatigue because there is no emotional crux to it. There is no pull to the story. So all you get is mindless violence or mindless action set pieces. What don't really go anywhere. They don't serve any function to the story. And as we said, this is the where John has excelled. He's realized this whether it's consciously or, or, or unconsciously. Maybe it's just his influences are vast. Mm-hmm. He's he's not a film geek in the same way, uh, you know, a certain filmmaker is. He's not just trying to emulate people he's watched. I mean, we, we've we just said his two most influences is film. Scorsese, Melville's The Samurai. This film, 
apart from a few superficial nods, hmm. isn't necessarily like that. He's developed his own thing based on his influences, whereas I think a lot of people have tried to be, okay, John Woo's doing this. Let's just try and do a John Woo. Yeah, it's exactly. a pale imitation. You have to impose your own sense of style, your own sense of thematics to the film. Otherwise, you're just being derivative, and it just doesn't work because you're not John Woo. That's why when you get a film that comes along that's hugely influential and has a kind of a some sort of specific corner of the market, say something like Die Hard came along. How many times have you seen a Die Hard clone? A bunch of terrorists take over a certain bit, or things like that, because they become so derivative. But Woo very much a proponent of the what he calls the the cinematic language because apparently as a kid he was quite shy growing up and it was movies that helped him express his feelings in fact the action sequences in this film you'd think oh this took ages to choreograph actually the action sequences were unplanned because a lot of this script was kind of written on the fly right, yeah. and what he said is he would we would turn up and he would speak to the actors he would speak to the choreographers etc and he would just kind of plan it out then he would see it in his his mind's eye he says i prefer to work as an artist like a painter I want to show where my mood takes me. So he could have planned out an action sequence, turned up the next day and thought, no, I don't like that, I'll go, we'll do it like this instead. Now, now let's think, right? Because this is important to the John Woo story. The John Woo we know. Mm-hmm. A Better Tomorrow. Better yeah. Tomorrow 2. The Killer. Mm. They all involve Sue Hark. Is there an argument to be made that when those two filmmakers work together, they are intrinsically better? Now, I know you said you preferred hard-boiled, but you could say that's a one-off. Mm-hmm. A Better Tomorrow is great. Better Tomorrow 2 is great. I've never saw a Better Tomorrow 3. No. Killer is great. Do they elevate one another? Do they bring something, as we said, this mixture? Hark's got the the pathos, mm-hmm. the, the melodrama. Woo's got the action. Does that combination elevate their own work? It must. It must be like getting one of those perfect director. It's like having a per- perfect director screenwriter partnership. Like Hark's also a director. Exactly, like with your Scorsese and your Schraders, yeah. for example, how they're able to complement right. each other. And I like that blending of two, two very different emotions, two different elements to the film. And I like how, as we mentioned earlier, the kind of meeting halfway thing here, putting the film together with these elements blended together so well. And that's why the movie works so good. Well, it's like the visual storytelling we were saying with Jenny, the, the nightclub singer, blinded by Chow Yun-Fat. That's melodrama. Mm. That's raising the stakes. Mm. That's penance. That's the Christian mythology. That's everything exciting in filmmaking. How would you make up for this cardinal sin? You didn't intend to do it, but there's there, there's the emotional tug of the film. What do you do to serve your penance for that? How do you make up for that? It's no coincidence that when he blinds her, when her eyes are bleeding, he also wraps his white scarf around mm-hmm. her her face to stop the blood. That's the purity. That's the white coming in. That's yeah. that's his visual storytelling, the, the, the good guy in white. And now it's bloodstained. Mm-hmm. You have this heroic figure. This film's about he- heroism, heroism, the heroic bloodshed. And now his literal, his metaphorical heroicism, his, his whiteness is now stained in blood. It even does pay off later in the film because after the massive shootout, which goes on for... A decent length of time, lots of blood is spilled. I feel bad for whoever has to clean that church up. Yeah, but he actually does Not a real get, church. He actually does get his eyes shot out. Not sure how that would happen. I'm pretty sure if it was a direct shot, you'd be killed. But like nothing can stop this guy except this apparently well he's a superhero in a sense isn't he yeah he is until he isn't yeah also even at the end one of the i'll say one of the main henchmen spends the whole time even though it's an action sequence taking place at night guy's got the sunglasses on 
almost like that's a mark of one the purity, one the evil. Because, I mean, you're wearing sunglasses at night. I'm pretty sure if you're a gunman, that's counterproductive. Does he think he's a Hollywood celebrity? I think it's just to look cool. It's like, you know, in, yeah. uh, in films and TV, when people take glasses and sunglasses yeah. off to say something profound, even though it's totally pointless. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but they do it because it just, it just looks cool. But we have to, uh, you know, realise, respect the continuity of this film. When people are shot, like we've mentioned the bad guy, they are bandaged for the film. Mm-hmm. They don't recover in a day. Like yes. some films. Yeah. It does have some interesting details I liked about surrounding the gunfights. For example, how many movies have you seen where someone gets shot in, say, the shoulder? Just kind of, ah, oh, oh no, but then shrugs it off. I was watching a film uh, video where a doctor was watching Breaking Down Movies and TV, how accurate it is, and she says she hates that because if you get shot in the shoulder, yeah, there's no major organs there if you shoot high enough, but there's lots of major blood vessels. You get shot there, chances are if you don't get medical treatment, you'll bleed out. That happens here. One of the first kills in the movie, uh, on the movie, which takes place on a tram, right. gets shot in the shoulder and bleeds out. So really? I do have that, that, those injections of realism there There's as well. There's a little attention to details uh. that you don't, you maybe wouldn't find otherwise. I've actually broke my collarbone. Yes, and how bad was that? You know what? It weirdly wasn't sore. Uh. The, the recovery was sore. Yeah. But I, your body goes into like protection mode. The adrenaline rushing yeah. through so as may, well. So, hey, so maybe these filmmakers are onto something. Maybe they can be shot and survive. Maybe they're just running on pure adrenaline. That must be it. Because I, I broke my <laughs> collarbone mountain biking. Arse overhead over the handlebars. <laughs> I was on my own. I was several miles from home. Mm. And, you know, I broke my collarbone, yet managed to, you know, pu- push my bike home. <laughs> Almost a 127-hour situation. Yeah, oh. Stuck on your own yeah, way out yeah, in the middle of yeah. nowhere. But that, that scene with the shootout on the tram, that takes place on the streets of Hong Kong. And I did think interesting how did they do that because you can see people looking at the camera looking concerned I think they were only allowed to that very small amount of time there's little cinema verite touches where they work with a real audience lots of the local police let this happen because purely because they were John Woo fans really yeah and when they did the shootout on the tram some people genuinely thought a robbery was taking place I wonder if they were wearing trench coats I wonder if they they were a better tomorrow they got free trench coats after the film was complete but those little injections of realism and the fact that because I think a lot of the extras in this film were of John Woo like friends and associates yeah, because, them, yeah. because he had this hard time after Better Tomorrow 2 Better Two Days Later yeah, after yeah. making that film the fact that but the fact he got so many people together to make this film which turned out so well it's actually in the Criterion Collection which really? calls it an exquisite dissection of morals in a corrupt society highlighted with slow motion sequences of brilliantly choreographed gun battles on the streets of Hong Kong. This is one of them films where actually the slow motion works. It does, yes. Some doesn't. In some films, it can feel tacked on. Now, some people think the ending is tacked on. The death of Chow Yun-Fat, how quick it came for such a heroic figure, and it seems to happen within, you know, seconds. What did you think? Did you think the ending worked? I, I think it worked. Did you think it was a conf- confliction there between Sue Hark and John Woo? Like the like they were going to have to make some yeah. kind of compromise. Was there a compromise? Some people think it was a compromise. Some people think it happened too quick, too sudden. It works. But here, here's what I was thinking. We have this the thematics as we've mentioned, this code of honor, this heroicism above anything else. Yeah. But if we think of it, Chow Yun Fat Zhang, he dies. Jenny goes blind at the end, mm-hmm. and the cop who is obsessed with Chow Yun Fat Li Young, he kills the bad guy at the end in front of his superiors, in front of his fellow policemen, which he's obviously going to go to prison for that. Yeah. So we've got death, blindness, and prison. <laughs> now, what do you think that is saying? Is that saying, here's the consequences, or or more confliction? And I think it is probably what it is saying. The end doesn't necessarily matter. 
what matters is you upheld your own moral code. You fought for what was right in your eyes. And I think that's what this film is about. The heroicism, the heroic bloodshed. The end doesn't matter. The end doesn't necessarily justify mm. the means. It's about if you stay true to your convictions. Yeah. So it's not necessarily tragic the fact they died. Right. What works is the fact they died for the right reasons. Exactly. In a sense, it's saying, here are the righteous who are trying to get by in a very horrible, corrupt world. One went blind, one has been killed, and one has gone to prison for it. They were all trying to do the right thing. For me, I have no problem with the downer ending. For me, I didn't feel like this spoiled the movie or anything. But do you think it's a downer ending? Well, do you, you could think? say because of a character dying, blinding, going right, to prison. Right, but let's think, let's think, let's hone in on that, okay? Chow Yun-Fat, through his love of Jenny, he blinds her. Yes. But he finds penance in her love. She tries to save him. She thinks she's shooting the bad guy or shooting the cop. She doesn't. She misses. But she thinks she is. So by her sticking by him, he has he has got his penance. Jenny, yes, she is blind, but she has also found love with Chow Yun-Fat. Lee Yin, played by Danny Lee, he's lost his job, <laughs> but he has found something higher. He has found his friendship in brackets, homoeroticism. He has found this. So each one of these characters has found something that they didn't have previously. Previously, Chow Yun-Fat was a mindless killer, hence, yeah. the, hence the title. Jenny was a lone singer in a nightclub with no man. And the cop, Lee Young, he was a by-the-numbers cop. He didn't have a purpose but mm. following the law. But by finding each other, they've all found a higher purpose. Mm. So basically, they've all lost something, but in the sense they've all gained something as well. So. so I think if you look at it from that angle, it's kind of an ambiguous ending in a way. So you can look at it from both ways. But for me, I thought it was perfectly fitting. I had no problem with Chow Yun-Fat dying. You could say he's been in all these gunfights and it kind of kills him now. But this is like the climactic gunfight. Mm -hmm. This is where he's had the most pressure. He's taking the most shots. Like you say, he'll be stitching himself, he'll be bandaging himself up, but he's covered in blood and he has that kind of heroic death right outside the church that is like him serving his ultimate penance he's got that joan of arc death mm -hmm. he, he's suffering for everybody's sins he's suffering for his own sins above all and that is the ultimate penance and i think it works terrifically it's a great ending i like the thematics of this film it elevates the action to melodrama which i think works well in this case yes it's a little 80s yes <laughs> it can be a little corny you just go along with that because you realize its potential you realize what it's going for for me, it works tremendously. I had never seen this for years upon years upon years. This was a first-time rewatch in probably over a decade because, you know, John Woo, right, as cinephiles, it's one of those filmmakers, you realise his importance on cinema and you have to divulge his catalogue, which is what I'd done as a teenager. And this was maybe the first time I've revisited The Killer since then, not because I didn't like it, because you just move on to other things. Because there's so many other films that you, exactly. want, that you want to go out and watch. And its success did help, again, propel him into Hollywood. And even producer Terence Chang, he said, the film is so popular in Hong Kong, he thinks it actually made Hong Kong filmmakers jealous because he said uh, the film it said it created a kind of resentment in Hong Kong films he says uh, one thing you can say is with America European Japanese Korean even Taiwanese audience and critics appreciated the killers a lot more than it was in Hong Kong so it's like they were looking at this film and think wish we could do that it's like this guy has tapped into something that we've not been able to access yet well cinema has not been the same since John Woo I think we can easily agree upon that action cinema changed for the better in some cases the worse because we got the obviously the imitators yeah. but as exemplified by the latest jo John Wick films it brought a uh, 
a kinetic approach to the action, an emotional tug to, tug to the action. And it did leave a lasting impression. John Woo is probably one of the most influential mainstream filmmakers alive. Well, as someone who grew up on the American films of John Woo, it's great to go back and look at where he started off, where he began honing his craft. You can argue that his films later were very silly, and they were. Mission Impossible 2, Broken Arrow, Face Off, Hard Target, were very, very over the top. But to go back to something like The Killer, which is... A very exciting action movie, very well choreographed, but with a lot of character development and a lot of underlying themes that make it more than just a dumb shoot 'em up. And you know how you dropped that nugget before that this is in the Criterion Collection? Well, next week we also have another entry in the Criterion Collection coming up. So join us next week where we will discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. <laughs>